0: yeah, let let us get to study sheets because I think some of you might have gotten study sheets that don't have a back. If you either need a study sheet or you don't have a back to your study sheet, would you raise your hand? Unless you're doing the digital thing online, you can do that as well. Get on Cali Harbin Wi-Fi and scan the QR code and you can get it online as well. Oh, John right there. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think there's some more back here too. Yeah. All right, cool. All right, so so last week we began our verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And man, it's such a fun way to go to dive into a book. You know, you're just letting God bring out the points. It's it's great to go topical. Like that's that's fun too. But it's also fun to just be able to go through a book and let's just go through this word by word, line by line, precept upon precept and let's just see exactly what God says. I'm not customizing it to any any pet doctrine of mine or anything of that nature. Let's just see exactly what God God says, but but for the most part last week, you know, we're off to a blazing start because I think we got through like five words last week if we're if we're really counting. I think it was about I think that's how many it was. But but what we were doing was we were spending some time answering the investigative questions of this book of 1st Thessalonians. The who, what, where, when, why, where and how. Did I say one of those twice? I don't know, but you know what I mean. We were answering we were answering those investigative questions and And what we found was that the history of what all was going on that led to the writing of the letter that we now refer to as 1 Thessalonians, as well as what necessitated that there be a church planted in Thessalonica, it's all found back in Acts. And it's actually all found back in Acts chapter 17. And what we did was we took a really close look at what all the ministry strategies were that we could glean by looking at Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and just kind of looking at how was it that they went about reaching people in Thessalonica with the gospel, which ultimately caused there to be this need for this church, right? This church at Thessalonica didn't just, boom, appear, you know, out of thin air. It didn't appear by osmosis. The, the church at Thessalonica started because Paul, Silas, and Timothy were reaching people with the gospel, and there became a need for a church, and And so, last week, we spent most of our time there. We discovered how it was that they did that, and we just looked at some of the strategies that they even had and some of the strategies that they used and And like I said, we used a little bit of, of verse one of First Thessalonians one just to assure ourselves that we had some of the details about this book and, and But as we begin let's read first thessalonians one one together and and we'll do some review out of this verse, but this is also the verse that we'll be we'll be studying this morning. First Thessalonians 1:1. 1, 1. Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so as a as a review and and, and so that we can have a point of reference for every Word of this book one of the things we see here are are the authors we see the authors who wrote the book of first thessalonians well the answer is paul sylvanus and timotheus which are greek renderings of their better known hebrew names which are paul silas and timothy and so paul silas and timothy are the authors now now though this book does have multiple offers it does have paul's fingerprints all over this thing and so it's his writing style and 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 you know he engages his apostolic authority there here and there. So though it says we a lot of times in this book, he does say I a couple times as well. So if you hear me referring to it as Paul writing it, you'll know why I'm doing that. Plus it's easier than me saying all three names every time I make that reference but 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 you may hear me so you may be hear 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 me say it that way but all three are credited as authors of this book and and last week as we were answering the investigative questions we also looked at number 2 on your outline which was the audience we we looked at the audience which of course was the church of the Thessalonians that that was the audience and 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 that's clearly the audience based on 1 Thessalonians 1:1 and I know that that seems really, really basic. Like, wah, wah. Like, what, like uh, okay. Like, yeah, okay, that, that's, that's very simple. But it's very important for us to know because that's how we know that this is a book that's written to believers in the church age, which is the, pl- which is the time we're currently living in. Okay, we're, we're also the church. And, and when we understand that, we can understand how to make application to our lives because not every book in the Bible is written to the church. Sure, all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, but we need to be aware when we're reading somebody else's mail so that we can stay in between the white lines biblically and not get ourselves lost. We, we often say it this way, not, not all of the Bible Is written to us, but it's all written for us. Well, the book of 1 Thessalonians is actually written to us, but not not only did we see that it's written to those of us that comprise the church, we saw that there's this special application to those of us that are living in the last days. There's a reference to the coming of the Lord at the end of every single chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's the theme of this book, preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord. And y'all, we just might be the generation that gets to meet them in the clouds that never has to see death. Can you imagine that? I'd be cool with dodging that one, but we, we just might be it. I'll, I'll tell you this, we've got a better chance than anybody else who's ever lived. <laughs> we, we, we've got a better chance than they do, But but there's a special application to those of us living during this time period and and it just so happens that biblically those of us that are living in this time period according to revelation 3 as it describes those of us living right now the way god describes the the people in this period of time is that word you hear a lot around here which is lukewarm and and that's, of course, something that, as you all know, that's something that God hates. And it just so happens that Thessalonians means hot springs. And, 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 and so we were looking at that. And so I believe applying what we learn from this study and what we learn out of this book can cause us to be a church that's characterized by hot springs in a lukewarm age. And and, and that brings us to where we'll begin this morning based on 1 Thessalonians 1 1 and in number three on your outline is the position of the church the position of the church first thessalonians 1 1 let's let's you can pull that up again but we see that there's a a statement made that the church of the thessalonians is in god the father and in the lord jesus christ Okay, now a church is a body of believers, so a a church is comprised of individual believers, but how is it exactly that we as individual believers that comprise the church, how is it that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that even mean and how does that work? So first I, I want us to look at the fact that letter A, that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at, at that one first. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, here's what happened, y'all. The moment that we got saved, we were placed in Christ. Christ took up residence on the inside of us, or Christ was placed in us, and we were placed in him, and, and that concept of being in Christ, it's, it's found all through Paul's letters in the new testament but it's especially found in the book of ephesians in ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 here here is what he here's what he says listen closely blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places here it is where in christ verse 4 according as he hath chosen us here it is again in him that's in christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love so according to verse 4 i want you to notice that god didn't choose who would be saved before the foundation of the world he did make a choice but contrary to popular belief it wasn't that choice he chose that those that would be saved would be placed in Christ. That's what he chose. God made a choice, but it wasn't the who, it was the where. It wasn't who would be saved that was chosen, but where those that would be saved would be placed. And those of us that are saved this morning, we're, we were placed in Christ, we are in him and so now when god looks at us he doesn't see us for our sinfulness but he sees christ's righteousness because we're in christ but this verse also says something that I, that is a little more confusing and that's letter b is that we've been placed in god the father letter b we're, we've been placed in god the father okay so how does that work exactly well this is a group of people that would certainly understand the doctrine of the Trinity. God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and when we got saved, that whole, God, the Holy Spirit of God took up residence inside of us, and we were placed in Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 teaches us that we were also placed in God. And here's how that works. So Jesus is, is praying to the Father. Before he's crucified in in John 17. And and Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17. He's praying for those that would believe in the future. What What an incredible thought that is that we have recorded for us in a book. Jesus talking to the Father. And if that couldn't get any cooler, Jesus is talking to the Father. About us He's talking to those that would believe in the future. And, and this is what Jesus lays out for us in John 17:20. Jesus says, "Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us, believers in the future, those that believed on Christ through these guys through their word. Verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And, and man, there's a lot that we can, we can glean from that. But what I want you to see is, is that, that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and we are in them. Jesus says to the Father that they, future believers, may be one in us. So believers in Jesus Christ are in Christ, and Christ is in God. So just like 1 Thessalonians 1 1 says, we are in Christ, and we're also in God. What an incredible reality that is because of the ramifications of that. So so again, now that we're in Christ, when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but he sees Christ's righteousness. And because we're in Christ, we are now perfect positionally. That's our our position, meaning that because of our, our position before God is in Christ, he sees us as perfect. And not only did he place us in Christ the day we got saved, what came along with that is that he sealed us. So we're placed in Christ, we receive his righteousness, the Holy Spirit takes up residence on the inside of us, and we're sealed so that we can't lose what we received. And Ephesians 4, and chapter, in verse 30, says it this way. It says, Ephesians 4, 30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We're sealed unto the day of redemption. There's no getting out. We're sealed in Christ and God. The day of redemption that this verse mentioned is is when life is is over and we get new bodies incapable of sinning. What a a glorious day that will be. And and God basically says, until that day, you're sealed so you can't get out. And I believe that's connected to, to what this verse says next in 1 Thessalonians. I have it on your outline as the greeting from Paul. I think it's connected to what he says next. Here's here's what he says in in verse 1. Read it again with me. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's what he says next. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand something. Paul says grace and peace in his greeting in every single letter that he wrote in the New Testament, and, and a re- and one of the reasons he did that is, is, because grace was a was the greeting of the Greeks. It was it was like saying hello, and and the Jews greeted people with shalom or peace. But 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 that's one of but that's one of the reasons that he did it to hit those audiences. But it but it's funny how it works because when we're reading through you know the Bible, we're reading through Paul's letters we've got this tendency to skim over the introduction just a little bit, right? And I think we do that partially because he says something so similar in all of them, and so we've read that line over and over again, and so we just skim over that thing. But if you've been in this church for any period of time, you should know that that's the opposite of what you should do when the Bible repeats itself, isn't it? So... So a book doesn't have a volume button, does it? It doesn't have a volume control. So when God wants to turn up the volume, he repeats himself. So so I don't think we should begin this study by skipping over something that God inspired Paul to repeat in every single letter that he wrote. I think that would be a bad idea. I think we should make a big deal of the things that God does. So So let's look at this. Paul says, I want you all to have... The grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you understand what we were just looking at, when you understand. That we're in christ and in god and that means we've received christ's righteousness and when god looks at us he doesn't see us for the sinful stupid stuff we've done but he sees us sees christ's righteousness you realize the unbelievable matchless grace of god that's letter a on your outline if you haven't picked up on it grace and when you and, and when you understand what, what being in Christ means, you realize the grace of God that you've already received in salvation is more grace than you could ever get your mind wrapped around. It, it's more than we can comprehend. But but then you realize that this, this letter is written to the church or to a group of people already In Christ, so it's written to a group of people who have already believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ And are already saved and so just like most of us in this room They've already received that saving grace That we're talking about And so though we've already received more grace than we could possibly comprehend In salvation this verse is teaching us that God's got even more for us He has an endless supply Have you ever seen how John chapter 1 and verse 16 puts it? And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace or grace on top of grace. It's just piling up with God. It it just keeps piling up. That's the character of the God we serve. The way way it's put in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, it, it says it this way. Grace and peace be Multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our lord so so again that 's god 's heart towards us when it comes to this thing of of grace and, and even and even of peace. He says, "My desire isn 't just that you 'll have a little bit but that it 'll be multiplied unto you and, and that verse also teaches us along with first thessalonians one one that God wants us to have peace that comes from him. Let her be peace. He, he wants us to have the peace from God. And, and the way that it works, and the, and the way that this whole thing comes together is, being in Christ and in God, just like we talked about, has activated grace and peace, and these things go hand in hand. Are you hearing that? I'm going to show you what I mean because God pulls this whole thing together and he explains how all of this comes together in Romans 5, 1, and 2. When Paul says this, listen carefully. Therefore, being justified by faith, if you've been justified by faith, it means that you are saved and have been placed in Christ and in God. So because of that, we have, continuing on in the verse, peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, now we have peace with God. You see, the Bible teaches us that those that don't believe are condemned already and are enemies of God, just like we once were. But now through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Being in Christ activated the peace. Verse 2. By whom also... We have access by faith into this, and there it is again, grace. That grace is activated by faith or by being in Christ and in God, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, do you see how those verses connect those dots? Do you do you see that? You see, according to verse 2 faith in Christ, or being in Christ in God, gave us access to God's grace that he desperately wanted us to receive. And according to verse 1, faith in Christ, or being in Christ in God, gave us peace with God when we were previously condemned and were enemies and were anything but at peace with God. And, and, and so what Paul does in Romans 5, 1 and 2 right there is he basically clears off some space to give us some insight into that greeting that he uses in every single letter that he wrote. And he just ties these ideas together and connects the dots. It's something else I'd like for you to see about peace is that, like I just mentioned, certainly peace was made between us And God the day we got saved and were placed in Christ in God and and I briefly mentioned it earlier but if if you're placed in Christ in God and your sins have been forgiven Then and and when God looks at you He sees his righteousness instead of your sinfulness and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of you and sealed you In the fact I want you to see that the fact that we're sealed is so unbelievably monumental because he sealed you so that you couldn't lose the salvation that he gave you. And that, it, that it, man, when you understand that, 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 that's huge. You know, if you could lose it, then you weren't really sealed, were you? Right. That wasn't much of a seal if you can pry that bad boy open. That's, that's not doing its job, is it? And for that matter, the Bible's choice of words when it used eternal life was a very poor choice of words if you can lose it. (laughs) It's like we were placed in a container which is in Christ and God and then then God comes along and he puts the lid on that thing. But, But when you understand those things and you realize that God has you safe and sealed until the day he takes us to heaven, then at that point you can really understand peace on a whole different level than you've ever understood it before. He wants to give us peace. He wants to be our peace. And when we understand the ramifications of being in him, there is no greater peace. Peace was made between us and God. But not only that, we can have peace because we know that if we genuinely got saved, then we've been placed in him and him in us and we are sealed so that we can't lose the salvation that he gave us. Our salvation has afforded us the ability, y'all, to have certainty that we will spend forever with the Creator in heaven, and we're incapable of losing our salvation, and that should bring us some unbelievable peace in our lives. You know where peace is impossible to find? In the life of somebody who doesn't know if they did or didn't do enough today to lose your salvation. Peace is absolutely impossible to find in, in that place because when you understand the gravity of your eternal destiny, you can't have peace, believe in that. And God wants us to have that. How in the world are we supposed to fulfill the mission that God has for our lives to reach other people with the gospel if we don't even know if we've been a recipient of it ourselves? What a mess. God wants our lives to be filled with grace and peace, and he wants it to be multiplied unto us. Something else I think God wants us to glean through this greeting that Paul gives us in the book of 1 Thessalonians is is there are a couple specific ways that God wants us to be sure that we know him. Because there are two titles that Paul uses to describe God. Number five on your study sheet, I have it as the titles of God Here's how God wants us to know him as described in verse 1 and letter A. First, he wants us to know him as Father. He's God the Father. Listen, he could have just described him as God. He doesn't use his words haphazardly and just slap that in there for no reason. He could have just described him as God, and, and we would have all known who he was talking about if he would have just said God. But he calls him Father. In the first part of verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul references him as God the Father. It's a name which shows authority, but it's a name which shows his love, just like God designed it to be with our earthly fathers. See, our earthly fathers were designed by God to be a picture of the heavenly Father. That's why he shared the name Father with us. And for some of us, that was an incredible thing. That was an incredible experience because our father showed us the beauty of God's design when it comes to this thing of being a father. There's an authority, there's a security, but there's a, there's a love and there's a beauty to it that's almost unmatched in creation when a father does it right. And in the beginning of the verse, the Bible refers to him as God the Father in First Thessalonians 1, which man, that's incredible in and of itself, isn't it? But would you look at how Paul changes it in the second half of the verse? In the second, he goes from from, from calling him, which is God the Father. And in the second half of the verse, do you see how he refers to him? God our Father. You see, he's God the Father, but you got to love how personal he makes that thing in the second half of the verse. God, our Father, though he has all authority and he's all powerful and he's all-knowing and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient as God the Father, he also loves us and cares about us and is long-suffering towards us and is forgiving. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities as God our Father. Do you know him like that? That's how he wants to know you. And and, and I know, especially depending on what our father was like, that it might be hard to see God like that, and it might be hard to understand God that way. And and so that we might be able to understand the kind of father that God is, in more human terms, Jesus comes along the scene and he gives us this parable. And and I believe this parable gives us a glimpse into who God our father is really is and it may be familiar to you but it's the parable of the prodigal son and and if you'll recall in the parable this father had two sons and and the younger one decides to squander his inheritance so he he leaves his family he runs off he wastes his inheritance on riotous living the passage says and then there becomes this then there's this famine in the land that comes and and he begins to he begins to starve in fact it says the The pigs were eating better than he was, for goodness sakes. And the prodigal son begins to reevaluate what he's made of his life and and pick up with me in Luke chapter 15 and verse 18. And, And the prodigal son says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So, so when he's, so when he's a great way off, the, the, the father saw him and and you just have to wonder how the father saw him a great way off. And you have to think that every day he was, just, he was just waiting and was just ready and willing to forgive if he'd just come back home. Check this part out again in verse 20. When he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. You see that the the father's looking for him because he's so ready to forgive and when he finally sees him He he doesn't wait for him. He he runs to where he is And one of the beautiful parts about this story to me is that the that the same road in which the father watched that son walk down out in rebellion against him is the same road that father ran down to receive him back He had compassion on him and he had forgiveness and watch what it says in verse 21 and the son said unto him father i've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and i'm no more worthy to be called thy son but the father said unto his servants bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, (laughs) and they began to be merry. Listen, that's the kind of father that God is. A God that's ready and willing and wanting to forgive. And when we screw up, and we will, we can come to a God and find, not a God that's wanting to rub our face in it, but a God who's wanting to forgive. That's the character of God our Father. That's the way that God wants us to know Him. God wants us to find in Him God our Father. And there's another way I believe God wants us to be sure that we know Him based on the way He's described in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Because like we saw, He's not just described as God. He's described as God our Father. And in a similar fashion, He's not just described as Jesus Christ in this verse, either is he, and no two times he's described as the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to know him as Lord. That's who he is. That's beyond your outline, Lord. We're in. This is a man. This is a very familiar title for Jesus in the Bible. In fact, the title of "the Lord Jesus Christ" is found eighty-one times in the New Testament. But what's unique about it, though, is, is that 20 of the 81 times that we find this title, we find it in First and Second Thessalonians, which, is, which are books written so that we can be preparing for the coming of the Lord. Now, now, why would that be? Why would Paul keep going back to this title for Jesus? You see, for the Thessalonians, they understood that this thing was always about lordship. I'll show you what I mean. Last week we we went to Acts 17 and we we got the backstory of how the Church of the Thessalonians was started. This is is where we pick up the historical context of the Church of the Thessalonians and, of course, the inspiration for the letter. And in Acts 17:1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they they leave Philippi and they pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia and, and they go to the synagogue in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul begins to take the old testament scriptures and and he begins to reason with them and to show them That jesus was the christ and he likely showed them some of the pictures And types in the old testament that some of y'all are familiar with and and last week What we tried to do was try to pretend like we were back there with paul and tried to imagine some of the things that that he might have said to him and and we went through some of the Old Testament prophecies that clearly prophesy about Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the, the Messiah. And, and verse 4 of Acts 17 says that for some of them, light bulb comes on and they believe. But verse 5 says that some didn't believed, didn't believe, and they grabbed some lewd fellows of the baser sort. I, I told... Nathan couldn't make it. I told Nathan afterwards, "You're you're you're a lewd fellow that sorta of plays the bass. This is a lewd fe- <laughs> the baser sword." You're- I don't th- I don't know if he appreciated that or not, but I thought it was way too. It went way too well to me. I had to use it. But any <laughs> but they find these lewd fellows of the baser sword, and they get the city in an uproar, and-, and they grab some of those rough and tough guys, and they and they start getting rowdy. But, but I want to make sure you know and I want to make sure you see what it was that had them so ticked off. You know what it was? Look in verse 7 of Acts 17. All these, and all these is referring to Paul, Silas, and Timothy and those that are following them. All these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, listen, Caesar was the king. And of course, a king was the leader and the controller of the people. Caesar was Lord. He was the Lord of the land. Caesar was the shot caller up in here. And Paul and Silas and Timothy come in and they they begin to preach that there's only one king and, and there's only one Lord and his name is not Caesar, it's Jesus. And that's what the end of verse seven says. And that's what got everybody so riled up and that's what stirred up all these problems that led to this persecution that comes upon them that made paul silas and timothy get out of dodge and head on out of thessalonica and they flee and that's why then paul writes to these people in thessalonica and he just keeps beating the drum 20 times in the eight chapters of first and second thessalonians the lord jesus christ the lord jesus christ the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's just punching that thing because he knows that was at the heart of the issue. He wanted to make sure they remembered the Lord of the land isn't Caesar, there's only one Lord, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now what do we, what do, we do with that? Oh, I see, that's why those people back in Thessalonica needed to remember that Jesus is Lord. And yeah, that's true. But what is God trying to teach us through the book that we saw last week was written to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. And I think what God's wanting to teach us and to make sure that we don't miss is that it's more important than ever to understand who Jesus actually is and that we understand who he is, which is so much more than some baby in a manger, but he is Lord, he is King. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to ask ourselves the same question that Paul asked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19. You recall what he asked him? He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are god's in other words don't we know that the holy spirit of god took up residence on the inside of us when we called upon the name of the lord to save us and he now possesses us because he bought and paid for us on the cross and we are in him and we are his and you know what that means That means he is Lord that means he is king and that means he calls the shots now And you know what we could probably say is the daily battle of every believer in this room Who's gonna sit on the throne today? Who's gonna be king? Who's going to be Lord? You see, the big battle in Thessalonica was who's going to be king and who's going to be Lord and who's going to sit on the throne? Is it Caesar or is it going to be Jesus? And the big battle in our lives is very similar. Who's going to be Lord and king and sit on the throne, except Jesus isn't battling Caesar for the throne, is he? He's battling us. Every day, every morning we wake up, every decision that we make, who's Lord? Who's king? Who's going to call the shots? Now, before Jesus showed up on the inside of us the day we got saved, boy, that was an easy question to answer, wasn't it? I'm calling the shots today, buddy. <laughs> that's that's what was going down before that. No questions asked. But now that Jesus is on the inside of us, we, we got us a, there's an internal struggle going on now. There's a little bit of push and a, a little bit of pull. Who's going to sit on the throne as Lord? Which one's it going to be? Is it going to be God or us? And the reality is, believers in Jesus Christ, we have, a, we have a lot of satanic tendencies when it comes to this thing. I'll explain what I mean by detailing the fall of Lucifer. Lucifer, of course, later known as Satan. Understand, Satan wasn't always the way that he is now. He was created by God. He was perfect. And then there was a day that iniquity was found in him. And we see what that sin was in Isaiah 14, 12. In Isaiah 14, 12, he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I want you to see something in in these verses. This, This whole thing is about lordship and this whole thing is about a throne. Lucifer or Satan wanted to sit on and exalt his throne. But I do want you to see something very interesting. In verse 13, Lucifer uses the word also. He says, I will sit also. Do you see that? He doesn't say, I will sit instead of. I will sit also. In other words, I'll divide that with you. And then in verse 14, I want to bring to your attention, he uses the word like. He said, I will be like the Most High, or he will be like God. And notice he didn't say, I will be the Most High. He wanted to be like the Most High. In other words, he said, I will sit also with God, and I will be like God. He he isn't saying he wanted to, to kick him out. He's saying he wanted to share his lordship. You call some shots, and I'll call some shots, and we'll share this thing. Sharing's a good thing, right, Lord? We teach the kids to share, right? And and we know that that God isn't going to share his throne or his glory or his lordship with anybody. But here's what I want to make sure that you see. That's exactly how we approach it, isn't it? God, you can stick around. I definitely don't want to lose you completely because I don't want to go to hell. You know, you can stick around and call some shots, too, but why don't we share this thing, and why don't we share the Lordship? Is there anything more Laodicean than that? We talked briefly last week and some this morning about that thing of Laodicea, the way the Bible describes believers in the period of time that we're currently living in, and the Bible describes us as neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, and he says that, makes him want to spew us out of his mouth. It makes him sick. And I can't think of anything much more lukewarm than, hey, God, you don't have to leave, you can stay, but why don't you call some shots? I'll give you that, but why don't I call some shots too? Why don't we just share this lordship thing, just a little bit of hot and a little bit of cold? You see, a lot of us have grown up in the church, and so, my gracious, we would never... Consider leaving the faith or anything crazy like that, but you know what we would most definitely do God I want you to call some shots. I'm cool with that But don't mind me if i'm just over here calling a few of my own in the meantime I'm, not trying to run you out of town god But I want to sit on the throne also and call shots and have lordship like you But you know what you know what the the end Result of that actually is Listen There's only one way it can actually shake out because sharing lordship doesn't work The end result of that is what we find in matthew 4 verses 8 through 10 Remember when when satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness satan comes to jesus and he's he, he you know he jesus had been fasting for 40 days and nights And satan says if you're the son of god turn these stones into bread and then satan says if you're the son of god jump off the pinnacle of the temple and have your angels catch you and then verses eight and nine satan says i'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of them if you'll just do this one thing for me y'all listening if you'll just do this one thing for for me and satan gets to the bottom line which is how it shakes out when you try to share the throne and you try to share lordship and he says in verse 9 all these things will i give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me you see the bottom line is if you share the throne and you share lordship with god you have to share worship I'll worship you a little bit, God, as long as you worship me too. And that's the lukewarmness of the days that we're living in. We want Jesus as a part of our lives, but we want to be on the throne for the other part. And what we want is, is we want Jesus at our feet, worshiping us. And you say, oh man, I would, no, 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 I would never, I would never do that. I would never want that. I just want to date who I want to date and do what I want to do and buy what I want to buy and watch what I want to watch and Get on the internet sites that I want to get on And here's what we do We expect God to do his job for us whether we do what we're supposed to do or not Whether we sin or not we expect him to serve us Oh, God, would you do this for me and work out this situation for me and and help me to work things out with this relationship, help me to get this job and help me to get into this college and all along the way, we date who we want to date. We expect him to serve us. We do what we want to do. We expect him to serve us. We buy one of what we want to buy, we still expect him to serve us. We watch what we want to watch, we still expect him to serve us. We get on the internet and do whatever we want to do on the internet, we still expect him to serve us. So we expect him to serve us whether we serve him or not. And we claim we don't want Jesus to worship us while we sit on the throne as Lord of our life. But here and there, we'll let God call it a shot or two. I'll come to church every once in a while. How's that? Christ is dwelling on the inside of us, but who's going to rule? Who is Lord? You see, mutual lordship requires mutual worship, and it doesn't work because there can only be one. Will we sit on the throne as Lord, expecting God to sit at our feet and serve us like Satan wanted? Or will we allow God to sit on the throne as Lord while we sit at his feet and serve him? And that's what I mean when I say we oftentimes have a pretty satanic tendency when it comes to this thing of lordship. And just like the Thessalonians, I I believe that God wants us, as believers that are preparing for the coming of the Lord, I believe God especially wants us to know him and to serve him for who he is, which is Lord. Listen, there's a lot of things I think God wants to teach us through that greeting in 1 Thessalonians that's really easy to skim over and to fly across so that we can get to the good stuff. But as believers that are preparing for the coming of the Lord, God wants us to, for, to have multiplied grace and peace in our lives as a result of us being in Christ. God wants that for us, and, and we have access to all of that that we could ever need. And in the midst of God pouring out that grace and peace to us, there are some specific ways that God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him as father. Maybe maybe some of you didn't have a father that was anything like the father in the parable that I described. Maybe you did. You may not have found that in your earthly father, but that's who your heavenly father is, and that's how he wants to know you. He wants to be that kind of father to you, maybe the kind that you've never had. But he also wants us to know him as Lord. God keeps pumping that word Lord all throughout this book, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as important as it's ever been and maybe more important than it's ever been that we get that thing nailed down and we quit trying to be the Lord and the king of our lives and trying to share the throne with God, which ultimately ends up with him worshiping us, and we hop off that throne, and we serve the one as Lord that bought and paid for us so that we're prepared for the coming of the Lord. Jesus, we, we thank you for who you are, God, though you, you are Lord and you are worthy of all, God, and, and, and we, should, we need to get hop off of that throne. We also are thankful for the way that we can find you As father god, I pray if there's anybody here today who's never found you As father and as savior and as lord. I pray god that today Would be that day and I pray lord that you would just be stirring in people's hearts and lives You would be convicting of sin and of righteousness And of judgment And that you would be doing in this room. What only you what only you can do God, we can learn so much. My goodness, your word is so rich, and it's so packed with so many goods, God. And man, you've, you've, you've saved it for us. You've preserved it for us, and we're thankful for it. God, I pray we would apply what we've learned today, God. I pray we would, take, we, would, we would have grace and peace in our lives like you desire for us to have, God. And I pray that we would come to know you more intimately and know you as Father and know you as Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. May we stand and sing this song as we worship together and as we respond to the word of God. Just. I